Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, your host, and today my guest is Alex Giris, co-founder and CTO of Trusted Dispatch. Hi, Alex. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So Trusted Dispatch is a logistics provider. I'm curious about you and your background and a bit about the company. Sure, yeah. For me, I got started with Trusted Dispatch about four years ago. Before that, I was in different kinds of logistics from rail. I worked for the railroad for about 10 years. I worked for the Alberta government, moving Alberta government oil for four years or so. Worked for a pipeline logistics company, software company, and then I jumped on with Trusted Dispatch. Dusty Lavalle, the actual founder, had been working it for a couple of years, and he and I sort of restarted it, rebuilt all the technology, and now it is where it is with the help of TechTerra a little bit along the way. Excellent. And one of the key things that you do at Trusted Dispatch is help match up specific loads with specific drivers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we help shippers, specifically shippers of big stuff, big and heavy. So oversized, overweight equipment. It's going to be things that are uh, used for construction, agriculture, mining, forestry, bulldozers, tractors, that kind of thing. We match those up with the expert drivers that are in the right place at the right time, have the right equipment, and they're going in approximately the right direction. Excellent. Approximately the right direction. I like that. We'll get to that in a minute. What I find fascinating about your platform is that ability to connect the right driver with the right load and get it to the right place. Because these days, logistics is a growing problem as people are shipping more and more things to more places, right? So what do you experience on the platform in terms of loads and drivers and that kind of thing? Well, so you're exactly right. We try to match the driver to the shipper. And in fact, we try to match exactly one driver. So that one best driver to the one shipper and make that load just a perfect match so that both sides are delighted. I know there's other places that just kind of broadcast loads out and then it sort of turns into a bidding war and people just bid down to the cost of fuel. But that's why we have that geospatial and AI mix in, in our solution because we're trying to find one driver and get the price down for the shipper because that driver just happens to be really close and has that piece of equipment and all the expertise. And again, they're going in the right direction. And so if you can find that one driver, you're always going to be able to do better in terms of price because you don't have to entice a driver to you know drive eight hours out of their way to go to some remote place and pick up something really heavy and then go somewhere else that they're not planning to be and pay for all those round trip empty miles that that driver is probably going to have to carry. You know, on, the, on this podcast, we like to look at how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. And I think that notion of finding the right person who's going approximately the right direction is a really interesting place to start. Can you tell me a little bit about how you might do that or how that incentivizes people to take on loads and take on the right packages? Yeah. So I guess we can do a little bit of background on uh, how geospatial is important and sort of the easy and the hard parts for us on our platform. I was thinking in preparation for this podcast that a lot of advanced computer technology like AI, for example, is more or less getting commoditized. Like you can train your computer on how to recognize cats by just basically downloading a little plugin and then showing it 50 pictures of cats. And then now it knows how to, how to recognize cats. Geospatial has bits of that 
Like you can put a map up and you can put a pin in there where your business is, or you can find your directions to your business. But there's tons of other stuff that's related that is not that easy. And most of it relates to data, I think. So we have to be concerned about different jurisdictions. Permits, our our loads are very heavy, so they're not very standard. They could be wide. Different jurisdictions have different size limits. So one might be 12 feet wide and you need a permit. Then you go a little way down the road and it's 11 and a half feet wide. You might need a permit. The roads themselves, if your load is 12 feet high, for example, then that fits under the bridges. But then you go onto some side road and then all of a sudden your 12 foot tall or 16 foot tall load does not fit under that bridge anymore. There's border crossings. BC, I know they've got the mountains, so we've got frequently loads going from Alberta to BC, and the vehicle is not going to be going highway speed up and down those mountains all the time. It could be going, you know, 30 kilometers an hour at points. Right. You can't haul an excavator up through Rogers Pass at 110 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Even though the speed limit is that, then our models our models can predict that as the driver's speed. And so anyway, there's tons of stuff. All that to say is that's the hard part. The hard part is finding that driver that has the equipment and is not going to be sort of affected too much by all of these rules and sort of requirements, permitting, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to be able to get there. I'm going to say, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about the secret sauce. We value our driver's time quite a bit. So we have a cost in there for driver's time. And so basically we're trying to inconvenience the driver as little as possible to come and pick up your shipment. And so the formulas all end up sort of saying, which driver is the one that's going to be able to get there the fastest and get onto their next job the fastest while they're pulling your load. And then we compensate that driver fairly. And so that's basically after all those constraints, we find the driver that has that lowest uh, sort of optimized value there. Right. Yeah. I mean, that calculation of determining how to get something giant and heavy from one place to another, taking into account the real world conditions of bridges and road widths and permits and that kind of thing, coupled with that intersection of driver time, it sounds pretty challenging. And one of the things we've talked about before is just how people appreciate knowing the challenge that goes into these sorts of things, right? And how much value your customers get from understanding that challenge. Yeah, well, we know how hard it is because we built the back end, but then we also care a lot about our shippers and we'd like them to be able to post and publish a load in two minutes, a few clicks, almost as easy as a Google search. You just sort of pick your piece of equipment that you're hauling and where is it going from and when's it going, where's it going to? And then you press publish and you kind of get a price right away And then maybe a short time later, you've received a ding that your driver's been found. And it almost seems too easy, even though there may be, we work all across North America, and there may only be one driver, honestly. If you're moving something gigantic from someplace and then across a border and three provinces over, something like that, and it's going maybe not in the right direction that all the other traffic is going, that's kind of using that same equipment that needs to haul that piece that you want to haul, there may only be one driver. And we find that sometimes the shipper, they'll just kind of think, it seems to me that they, when they press that publish or when they see that load, the, the driver coming in with, for the load, that they've pressed almost like a conjure driver button rather than a uh, <laughs> sort of find a driver button. Sure, they sure. think they can press that again tomorrow and they'll find that same driver or another driver or maybe two days later. And it may be that there's only one driver in the whole of North America. And then if you don't pick that driver up right now, they're coming by in six hours or 12 hours or tomorrow. 
And if you wait, it's going to be another month before another driver can be found, or it might be $2,000 more to entice somebody to drive eight hours out of their way to pick up your thing and and move it to the destination. Right. Well, that's an interesting intersection there of like psychology and technology because you have found the right person to do the right job. But if I'm negotiating with you, I'm probably not going to take your first offer because the first offer is for suckers. But you're telling me (laughs) it's your best offer. That's right. It may be our only offer and it's our best offer. And maybe we should draw pictures of sweat coming down as we sort of do the search sometimes if it's exceptionally hard or that is something we're trying to figure out is is just let them know, you know, you're likely okay if you skip this driver because this is a well-traveled route, it's a good lane, so you're going to find other drivers. But in another case, you better pick this driver up because there's going to be nothing coming through here for another couple of weeks. So Right. I would imagine that gets exacerbated as you look at things like mining roads and forestry roads and some of those roads that perhaps urban dwelling, even rural dwelling people aren't familiar with, right? I, I haven't driven out to a mining site in my life, and so... I can kind of imagine it's not a great road, but um, I imagine that adds some more complexity to the situation as well. That's right. Yeah. Some of this equipment, uh, it goes everywhere. So it's not always just building things inside of a city. It's uh, going out to the middle of nowhere to uh, excavate a hole and find gold or something like that. So yeah, we have had stories, one that I remember quite a bit. There was a driver that was hauling quite a big earth mover, like an excavator or something pretty far away. So I think it was something like five or six hours of driving down some road with this thing that weighs probably 80,000 pounds and it's a dirt road and you're driving along it and it's kind of like the brush is is brushing against the load, like the bushes are touching. So there is no way, you know, you're like, you got to stay right in the middle of that thing. And if you go too far to the left or right, you're going to probably slide off the, the good part of the road and it might be going up and down and windy. And whether he got the instructions wrong or the uh, shipper said left when he meant right, the guy went down the wrong road. And if the thing is, uh, the trailer is kind of like 80 or 90 feet long, you ain't turning that thing around. There's, you got to go, he had to go for another three or four hours before he found a good turnaround spot and was able to make it back to whatever the mine or the work site that he was trying to deliver to. So he was pretty disappointed at that. So you just miss it. One minute later, you realize you made your mistake. You're in it. <laughs> you got to be on a big one-way trip for three or four hours. Yeah. Gee. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of the double-ended sort of, of technology too, right? As you hear stories about people who punch in an address into their GPS and blindly follow the best possible road. I was seeing in Colorado earlier this year during some of their winter storms that the major highways were closed and they were rooting people up through some like sketchy four-wheel drive mountain passes. <laughs> yeah, And then, of course, the locals are saying, well, don't come up here because this is not a road for your Toyota Corolla. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably true, yeah, because on Google Maps or on your uh, GPS in your car, it all looks blue. So you're just driving along this blue line and it all looks blue. And so who knows what the actual surface is like. We do a lot of small towns, like we do lots of rural locations. All this stuff goes everywhere. Agricultural equipment is could be going anywhere. And you'd also be surprised to find out how many times the same name is used. So there's tons of the same places in different provinces. And so we've had people post a load that's going, uh, I can't think of one right now, but going to Esteban somewhere and it's uh, Esteban in a different province or a different place or something like that. And <laughs> they only find out about it. Like it's the thing it's a was actually, nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, uh, you know, we show them ways to confirm that the origin and destination are correct. But there was a couple of cases where the thing actually got delivered to the wrong province. 
Oh no. <laughs> yeah. so, it was supposed to go to Saskatchewan and end up in like Manitoba or something. Something like that. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned ag equipment because one of the other bits I like looking at is how technology reflects our values and how kind of our values get encoded into technology. And and my understanding is that the permits for moving ag equipment are quite open. Tell me about moving ag equipment. Sure. Yeah. In places you may have seen it yourself driving down the highway, Highway 2, maybe between uh, Calgary and Edmonton, you sometimes can see a tractor driving along the highway going at 30 kilometers an hour or something like that, where a normal vehicle would never be able to do that or a wide load. So anyway, there are areas around that have those uh, kind of preferential treatment for different kind of vehicles. And so I don't know why it is, but probably because farmers need to get from field to field with equipment and they just, they could be using the road for a little while or they got to move stuff to market. And yeah, commercial vehicles would require permits or oversize flagging or pilots or something like that. And uh, oftentimes farmers move in their own vehicles. It's very surprising, but they can take up the whole road with their own combine equipment and drive it down at 30 kilometers an hour and sometimes stop everyone for a while. And, yeah, if I've got uh, a 50-foot sprayer, I can drive it up the QE2 if I want, yeah. but I couldn't take a 50-foot wide load at the same, That's right. the same yeah. way. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and so I would imagine that those that value gets encoded into your system as well, right? You can understand who's moving what and how that affects things. Yeah, we try. We tr- when we do our route finding, we try to include all that. That's another part that's hard because that's typically encoded in words. So it's some kind of regulation, transportation regulation somewhere, and it's just written down. And that's part of what makes the GIS hard is that you don't know, you know, depending, even if the same thing is the same width, depending what it is and who's hauling it, there might be different treatment to that or even different times of day. It's not an easily machine readable kind of problem. There's no simple if then for it. Yeah, that's right. But I think, like you said, I think it's uh it's sort of a balance of priorities. So farmers are everywhere. They need to move their stuff around. So Right, and we need to eat. Get priority. You know? yeah, 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 exactly. Get priority. They're, work, they're kind of moving their own things. So it's a uh, necessity. Yeah, I mean, if you had to get a permit every time you had to go from field to field, that would be pretty crazy, I think. That'd be a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, what about hazardous goods? I mean, if you're trying to move hazardous goods around, Again, I suspect that's an interesting technological and sociological problem. Yeah, in addition to the big size, sometimes the stuff that we haul has some kind of hazardous component to it, and that's even more uh, restrictive. So there's a whole other set of rules there where you can't sometimes move through inside of cities, sometimes depending what it is, or through the centers of towns. You have to go kind of like use the roundabout roads. I know that the national parks are a little bit strange sometimes. You can't put commercial vehicles, definitely not hazardous most of the time, but sometimes not even commercial vehicles during through some of those uh, touristy roads, then even if it's not that hazardous, you still can't pull a, a bobcat on a flatbed through uh, the Icefield Parkway, I don't think, but you can take a bus through there, which is possibly bigger than that. So, yeah. Well, and again, it's an, kind of an interesting encoding of values, right? We don't necessarily want hazardous materials traveling through the national park or commercial vehicles on roads designed for tourists. So, I can see how that would get built in. And at the same time, it makes it a bit hard to imagine if, I'm, if I need to haul something hazardous from Vancouver to Calgary, I can't go straight on Highway 1. No, there's ways around. So the routes are a little bit, there's ways to get there. There's obviously ways to get there. But yeah, you can't go down the most direct path that you'd take if you were driving a car. Do you have any specific stories you wanted to tell? Well, sort of outside the people that end up in the wrong town or uh, they went one way down, uh, they took the wrong path and they uh, they ended up 
six hours out of their way to get back. There's other ones like sometimes the address of a farm location, for example, it could be gigantic, right? It has a point. Addresses are usually points, but in the case of agriculture equipment, those locations could be kilometers by kilometers, like they could be a cube, a square that's very large. And so sometimes it's difficult to get the driver to the right place there. Like their drivers have sort of driven around in circles trying to find the place that they were told to drop off the equipment just simply because the GPS has taken them along the route and it's taken them to sort of the main location or the center of that field, but that's not how you get into the field. You, right, that's not where the gate is to get that's in. That's right, yeah, you yeah. can't end up there. Yeah, so yeah. those are stories. Borders are pretty terrible, so there's documentation required for everything if you're if you're moving this stuff, and borders are almost the worst. You know, if you're if you have a comma off on uh, somebody's name, uh, company name, or something like that, or uh, you wrote limited instead of incorporated, then you could be at the border for four hours instead of smoke on through in thirty minutes. Right. Yeah, and I imagine that's hard to take take into account when you're building technology to reroute things, right? Well, yeah, like sometimes we do have to put in sort of extra time considerations for the border. We can't know that the shipper did not fill in the customs informations correctly, but we know that sometimes drivers like they avoid going over the border. They almost they need more because it's a big risk to take that into account. Similarly, even just measuring the equipment. I mean, uh, if something is twelve feet long or twelve feet wide. That's one type of a move. And if it's 12 feet and one quarter inch wide, so just a hair wider, then it needs a whole different trailer or it needs a whole different set of permits or it might need pilot cars through certain jurisdictions or it might not be able to travel during the day. It might be forced to travel at night. And so those are two totally different scenarios as far as driver effort goes. But the equipment looks almost the same. It's only a, a tiny sliver bigger. One is more bigger than the other. It's almost like you should probably file down the bolt out of, that's coming out of the tire. <laughs> try to get it down that quarter inch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it just barely kicked over that category into the next that's level, right? right? Yeah. 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 Similarly with uh, yeah, weights too. It could be if it's a certain number of pounds, then it's one type of trailer and no permit. One pound more, then it's a whole different type of trailer and it might need more permits. So what do you see coming up in the future of this sort of highly specialized logistics? And how do you see location technology and this sort of optimized routing and and pairing services playing out over the next couple of years? Well, logistics is a big, big industry. It's kind of like one of the biggest these days, and it's got tons of focus for AI and, uh, and these kind of turning everything online and computerizing the matching. But we're in that we're in an area where, like I said, it's all difficult. Every load is almost unique. You can't just price a load like if you want to ship a box from A to B, you know it's probably going into a van and then it's going into a bigger van or on a train and then it's going to end up at a depot somewhere and then fan out to the curb on the other side. And you can price that down to the penny probably, right? Like if you go to Canada Post, they're going to tell you it's $22.35 to get your letter or your box wherever it has to go. On ours, like I said, if it's a hair bigger, it's going to be a $1,000 difference in price. If it's a pound more, it's going to be a $1,000 difference in price and, time and, and difficulty in finding that driver. So our area, we'd love to have better data, I would say. So all this data that we've been talking about, all these permitting requirements, these restrictions, that is all encoded in mostly PDFs of regulations. And it would be awesome if it was uh, sort of publicly available in a standardized, encoded way where we just have attributes on routes. And then that would make our jobs way easier, for at least for our company, for sure. 
That's kind of like the non-commodity stuff that we can know where the main roads are and what the speed limits are on those things. Those are fairly well well known in which directions, one ways and things like that. But it's all that other stuff that's not tagged anywhere. There's no attributes to hardly any roads. Yeah. It's getting those regulations machine readable and entered into the system. So then you can pair it with the geography to know which conditions are where and for what and for who. Yeah, exactly. I know that there's a lot of that. A lot of governments are trying to invest effort in getting uh, geodata publicly available and sort of more standardized so that it is consumable by uh, by the citizenry and the, and the businesses that are in their jurisdiction. But this stuff is still not there yet. Right. Yeah. It's still complex. That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you being here. It was great to chat. Yeah, it was really fun. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.